We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome to the Yin's No Ball Podcast. I am John Ledyard. With me is Brad Spielberger. And this is the inaugural podcast episode for the Yin's No Ball Podcast. Brad, I am pretty excited to be talking to Steelers fans once again. Yeah, fired up to be here. This has been in the works for uh, behind the scenes for a while now. Uh, you reached out. I was honored that you thought I, I was a Yinzer and New Ball. Both of those things <laughs> uh, hopefully proved to be true. But yeah, we're pumped about it. Uh, really excited for what we got coming forward. think it's going to be unique and different uh, and a great resource for Steelers fans everywhere. That's exactly right. Yeah, this process has been quite ongoing. We won't get into all the details. We'll talk a little bit, though, about kind of how we got here. You know, I've I've realized that I've got some time in the non-summer months. Most people know my job that I, that I switched to um, kind of get, gives me like in, during the summer, I'm like barely even online. Like I work like 16 hour days for about three and a half months. But then after that, there's some time, there's gaps, a little more flexibility uh, in the schedule during the season and, and in the off season for the, the NFL off season as well. So I just really wanted an opportunity to talk not behind a paywall, which my Substack's behind a paywall. I love that. Like I, I charge as little as possible to people. I think it's good for the market to to keep people like to get, support those kind of outlets as well. But I also wanted my something that was about not behind a paywall to be able to continue to talk to Steelers fans. Um, so yeah, discussions with lots of different sites and trying to figure that out over the past month and a half has been fun and stressful and crazy. But we're here, excited to be a part of Blue Wire Podcast. And when I thought about Coas, I was like. Who knows the draft? Who knows free agency? Who knows the offseason stuff really well? Nobody's better at the cap than you. Uh, we'll talk about that in a second and knowing that kind of stuff, predicting contracts and stuff, which is a huge part of that coverage because everybody could talk ball in the season. I feel like to some degree, some better than others, obviously, but like it was like, who knows all that stuff? So then the non-season months that that stuff can be a big part of our podcast because what you and I desire to do is to bring really unique in-depth content to people. We don't really care about being the first reaction pod out there after a game, which is why we're kind of, we do these pods when we have the space and time to be able to do them. And after we've had the time to be able to look at all 22 tape, 
to be able to look at the analytics, the stats, the numbers, and not just trust the eye test to what we're going off watching live. We want to be able to bring all that depth to our coverage. Sometimes that means we'll put on our first pod of the week on a Tuesday afternoon. And that's just the way we're going to do it because we want it to be quality more so than let's talk five days a week and we'll give you something watered down for 25 minutes. We we really want it to be quality podcasts when we do these. And so that's what we've done. We've kind of like looked over the tape. We looked over the numbers and everything. When I thought he would be excited about that quest and then be able to talk stuff in the off season, you were the first name that came to mind. And I knew you'd been doing some podcasts or some, uh, some uh, air spots on air spots with 93, seven, the fan as well for quite a while. So many people in Pittsburgh know about you that are Steelers fans and have certainly heard your off-season work, your work for Pro Football Focus. So this is exciting, man. I feel like between the two of us, we cover a lot of bases in the analysis department. I hope people are excited about what this podcast can be. Yeah, absolutely. No, I, I think the the cool thing about that too, you mentioned, you know, the varying degrees of film watching. Like, I'll just preface now. Like, I do watch a lot of tape. Like, what I'm looking for and what I'm watching compared to what John is looking are two t- entirely different things. And I hope that comes off as like approachable. Like, you know, look, I have the coverage glossy glossary by Cameron Soren sitting on my desk. I am trying to learn the X's and O's and scheme every single day. But I watch tape kind of as just like a did this guy do a good job or not? It's still kind of elementary level in some you know facets, but I hope that that's kind of approachable and, and relatable to some fans. Obviously, you'll dive into the you know the real weeds of it, and then yeah, you mentioned contracts, things like that. Um, you know, most recent one, I think I had Alex Highsmith at four years, sixty-five. He got four years, sixty-eight. So uh, hopefully, it gives me some credibility. Uh, <laughs> I know what I'm doing on that front. Like you said, yeah. we're covering this thing from all different angles. There's a lot of great coverage and, and beat reporters already in Pittsburgh. That's not what we were here to do. Uh, we're hopefully bringing you guys a different perspective, uh, help you learn. And, and we're, we're learning along with you the whole way. Yeah, absolutely. That's the thing too, with you as, as we've talked over the years, I've always appreciated the fact that you've never felt like you were going to just be this type of media person. You wanted the full, most robust picture you could possibly get as an analyst. And because of that, I've, you know, I've watched you grow in terms of tape and knowledge and all those kind of that kind of stuff and X's and O's and player evaluation and really push yourself into that realm, which has been so cool. And it's so good. Honestly, your stuff is just so good. And so I'm just so excited about this. I think that this um, has the potential to be the type of podcast that I think Steelers fans want. And there are some good outlets that do some, some work like this, but in the Pittsburgh media realm, especially, this is not really like the type of podcast, the type of content that has been out there. So we're, we're really going to try to create a podcast that is about the type of content you and I would care about. So stuff in the off season that we'd care about, and we'd want to hear about our, what would be our favorite team and stuff in the season that we'd want to hear about. And we want answers to questions. We don't just want to know so-and-so sucks or something. We want to know why, how, like, what's the problem? Why are they playing the way that they're playing? Why are they calling plays the way that they're calling them? So that's what we're going to try to get into. We're going to try to be that type of podcast. So for people who are into that content, this won't be like, oh, we saw the, the Steelers, you know, move somebody up from the practice squad. So let's put out an emergency pod. That's not this type of podcast. Certainly if Matt Canada gets fired or something like that, we'll put out an emergency podcast. But, you know, th- that's not the type of show we're going to be. We're going to be one that gets into the nitty gritty of why. Um, So Tuesdays, we'll be talking ball. Uh, reviewing the game that just happened Thursdays. Uh, we'll be looking ahead to the next game and then we'll see kind of what happens in between that as we see need for more content. We're also going to have a YouTube page that's going to be up. I've already cut some clips and and thinking through some ideas for that, little breakdowns and things like that that we can be doing on there. And the off season is going to be a ton of fun. We'll get to that stuff with people another time. But uh, so, yeah, so you'll learn more about us and our bios and teams we grew up rooting for. I grew up rooting. Let's say, let's tell them that I grew up rooting for the Steelers. People don't know. I grew up outside of Pittsburgh, been a diehard Steelers fan my whole life. And you were, were you bears all the way? Chicago. Yes. Yeah. Unfortunately, a tortured bears fan. Hopefully, you know, people feel bad for me and, and also probably appreciate 
why I do love the Steelers, you know, I, you know, watching the Packers, watching the Steelers kind of draft and develop. And again, they're not perfect. We're going to be objective. We're going to say positives and negatives, but uh, I think I probably look in the Steelers in a very favorable light for a lot of the things they've done. So yeah, mm-hmm. born and raised Chicago, all Chicago sports teams, uh, the bears this year. That's why I started a Steelers podcast with you. So I could stop watching uh, as much bears tape as possible. <laughs> I've watched the Bears tape the last two weeks because I also write some, I, I still do some Bucks stuff on my sub stack. So I watched them against the Bucks. And then I have been talking about the uh, writing about the Chiefs for newsletters at SB Nation, Arrowhead Pride uh, that they put out each week. So I'm doing like film reviews for them too. So I watched them twice, two weeks in a row. That is enough for me for a while. So let's get into the tape here on the Steelers from this week. And t- some of the notes that we have, and, and this is after looking at the All-22, we're going to focus especially on the offense. I think that's where most people have questions and want to know what's going on, what the issues are, what's positive, what's negative, what they did better. Did they do anything better uh, in Week 3 um, in that win against the Raiders? Uh, I know it looked that way on the scoreboard, but did they do anything better? Um, and, and what can kind of change to make this uh, more of a sustainable thing if they did do some things better? So Week 3, going into this game against the Raiders, how many plays did you get into the game before you were ready to pull your hair out? <laughs> I, I don't think it was a, a random hypothetical talking about the emergency pod for a potential change in <laughs> offensive coordinator. Not that either of us expect that to actually happen. But, right. yeah, I think one thing that jumps out, and you just sent your notes before, it was on my notes list as well, is, and I probably talked with this on 93.7 The Fan a bunch, you know, how- Yeah, so, you know, on the Canada topic, obviously the hot topic in Pittsburgh probably will be for the remainder of the season. You know, I think we've talked a bunch about you and I, but also, you know, me on Pittsburgh radio, et cetera, you know, near the bottom of the NFL and play action rate, near the bottom of the NFL and pre-snap motion rate, and just increasing those numbers without any kind of, you know, meat behind it doesn't actually change anything. And I think that was the big thing for me is we did see an increase in play action. There was some moving around of Calvin Austin and other players pre-snap as well, but like when you see that in Miami and other places, there's a purpose to it, right? Like if they, if they have, you know, action flowing a certain direction, maybe then they pull, uh, you know, a guard that way as well, and then run that direction or do different things that actually weaponizes those aspects. I, they did it. Um, you know, they, they actually move players around, but I don't think it really served much of a purpose on a lot of the dropbacks that I saw, um, mm-hmm. but it was better. You know, you know, I think overall we have to have the caveat too. Have you played, you know, maybe two of the best defenses in the NFL in the first two weeks. I mean, the Browns have allowed the lowest yards per play through three weeks in the the last 100 years in the NFL, and the Niners are the Niners. So, you know, more comfort playing against the Raiders, and there are some good things we'll get into. Yeah, I mean, I think that makes a big difference. The defense you're playing is a huge part of this. When you're you're not going to be an elite offense, you're not an elite offense. That isn't the type of ceiling we've ever seen from this group under Canada. And so if that's the case, then we're talking about like – the opponent really mattering, I think, in those aspects. So looking a little bit better against the Raiders was expected, I think, even just in terms of from a player perspective, you believe that talent is part of the problem, which I think it could be in certain areas and roles maybe, but not like overall. Uh, but we'll get into that. But I did think the big thing schematically that was better in this week was the fact that they ran more play action. Um, this was a team that weeks one through two had eight play action dropbacks. That was just 9% of Kenny Pickett's dropbacks. That was the lowest mark in the league. Six of eight for 94 yards and a touchdown. It was working. He was one of the, I think the Steelers actually were plus 3.2 yards per attempt better on play action passes than regular dropbacks going into week three. 
And then in week three, they started to lean into it. And by lean, I mean very slightly, but eight play action dropbacks, 27% of his dropbacks. So that's actually a big jump in terms of percentage. I mean, about as realistic a jump as you could expect to get to when you're at the bottom of the league in that area. So just in this game, he went six for eight for 61 yards and a touchdown. Um, And what's funny about it is that it wasn't like it was sprinkled in throughout the game where it came in as a focus. No, it was the second drive of the third quarter. And it was just out of nowhere. I think it was the second drive, maybe the third drive of the third quarter. And just out of nowhere, play action, like is a big, is a part of the offense. Like three times on that drive, uh, Kenny Pickett went play action from under, well, twice from under center, once from the gun. Uh, play action under center was a slant to Pickens. He had actually, they had run play action earlier in the game and he had um, Calvin Austin in the middle of the field wide open and he hold it he didn't throw it he had a good pocket clean pocket to throw it to it worked sucked everybody up i mean it could not have worked more better on that rep than it needed to kenny pickett looked at calvin austin he's wide open in the middle of the field he pulled the ball down and then he found went ended up going to warren in the flat for like a gain of one and that goes back to what we're saying with kenny he's it's some people will be like, oh, last year he was like one of the lowest graded quarterbacks on play action passing. And it was actually a negative for the Steelers play action passing compared to regular dropbacks. I don't care. Like that has to be something he gets better at. You know what I'm saying? Like he can't, like he is in his second year in the league. There isn't a, you're good at this and not good at this right now. Right now you are like, here is something that helps offenses period. End of story. You need to do more of it and you need to learn to get better at it. So they did come back to it later in the game. Again, we're talking eight dropbacks for the entire game. Later in the game, they come back to it. The play action of Pickens, the slant in the first play of the drive. I think two plays later, they ran like a play action to screen uh, to Jalen Warren. Not necessarily, the play action just kind of held everybody. I don't know that it necessarily aided the screen a ton. But then the touchdown was under center, play action in the corner route to Pat Fryermuth, who, who that was clear. Divine Diablo is in coverage, clearly influenced by the fake, totally had his feet stopped. Fryermuth runs by him. He can't catch him easy. Pitch and catch, a great throw by Kenny on that one. So it is clearly something that can help even this team, which doesn't even have a great under center run game to marry with play action. Keep in mind, Steelers still not running the football well and all of those things, but the keys still work because if you're those second level defenders, you have to process and attack just like in respect the fact that the team could be running the football. That's why the run game isn't working. So those guys are still ready to tee off even with the Steelers not running well, and yet the play action game's working anyway. And that's where the data, you know, side comes in, where we've done a bunch mm-hmm. of studies here at PFF about, first, we measure bite distance by linebackers. You know, the second level guys you're talking about, you don't have even have to have an effective run game to still get backers to really commit to the run game and it opens up that, that intermediate area where I think, again, against the Browns and Niners, throwing downfield is going to be a challenge. And I thought they had a lot of like flat flat routes and then like go balls yeah. or deep posts. And it's like, what about the intermediate level of the field? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that was a hugely improved area, you know, pick it on throws 10 plus yards in this game was six of 10 for 142 yards and both touchdowns. And a lot of that, obviously one of those is the bomb to Calvin Austin, but a lot of that was working that 10 to 20 yard area. And I think four of those six completions were on play action dropbacks where you saw the Raiders linebackers come in. It opened up windows over the intermediate and he was able to capitalize. So that's why we talk about that stuff. It's not just it working in a vacuum, but if the run game is not good, it, of course it helps, you know, but, but linebackers are still going to commit and then you're able to hit those intermediate throws. And we saw some of that, which is of course good to see. It was good to see. You're right. The bite disc, all that kind of stuff is fascinating information and something that I keep going back to. I'm talking about, oh, you have to be able to run the football well. And I'm not saying it doesn't help. I'm saying Plax is still effective 
regardless of whether you do or you don't. I think this game is a, a, another good indication that we'll talk more about the run game in a second. So uh, I was fascinated by that. I wonder how much more they lean into that play action has not been a big part of the Matt Canada experience in Pittsburgh. Um, some of that is probably because Ben Roethlisberger didn't want it a lot at the end there, um, even although they did times go to it when it was clear that nothing was going to save the final years of the Ben Roethlisberger experience. Um, but it, like I've said before, it really doesn't matter at that point. Like Ben was an established veteran. Obviously he got to call some of those shots. He knew it worked for him. He was good at other stuff. Well, he wasn't at the end, but he, you know, hypothetically he would have been good, still good at other things that he'd been good at throughout his career. Kenny shouldn't get to make that call like that. It needs to be a call that comes from the top um, where they're saying, okay, here's something because it it does work and it is good. Um, It's not like it's a, Oh, maybe it'll work for this. No, it will work. If you scheme it right, it will work and will be effective at least to a degree, especially for an offense as anemic as this one and one who needs to open up the middle of the field as much as the Steelers do. So I did really like that other thing that I'll say, and then we'll get into some of the negatives and things that need to change. I am not going to call this an improvement or something that increased necessarily, but the plays where they get the ball to people on the move. And those who subscribe to my Substack and listen to Ollie and I, Ollie Connolly and I talk on audibles and analytics or our home and home podcast that we do, that we share together. If we, if when we talk about the Matt Cannon offense, one of our biggest gripes and Ollie is kind of said this so well in the podcast is that one of our biggest gripes is how static the offense is. And as you get into the tape and watch the tape, Watch how many routes come back to the ball, stop at the top of the routes, turn around and come back to the ball. It's just a very static, linear passing attack that rarely gets, that really puts defenders in stress and coverage. I think that's a big part of this, right? Like how can you put defenders in stress with levels, concepts, and things like that? You Rarely do they stress defenders in coverage. And so it kind of becomes a very easy offense to play matchup zone against or to play man against because they have hardly any man beaters in that way. Um, there are a couple every game and they almost always work when the Steelers run them. Like it's unbelievable, but they just never go back to what works. And that's what makes it so frustrating in this game. Even talk about the play action and not going, they had all those three successful play action plays and we're just like, Oh my gosh, and you score a touchdown. You drive down the field for the first time. Then they don't go back to it at all. It's just like, what, how can, like, what, how can you not go back to it? It's clearly working. And so like those kind of things are so stressful and frustrating. I think when you're watching this team is that they'll find something that works. It's not like they haven't tried other things and found something that works. And then they just continue to not go to it. We'll talk about, especially in the run game in a second. One of the other things that I liked though, as I get into that was kind of the way that they got the ball on the move to a couple of the receivers. Now they do this a couple times every game. And again, it's almost always the best place, but that continued to be true in this game. Since this is our first pod, this is the first time we're going to talk about it this season, but got the ball to George Pickens on the slant off play action that I was talking to you about on the move, right? Uh, got the ball to Fryermuth to begin a drive on a first and 10. They kind of did, uh, they moved the pocket with a slide uh, protection and Kenny on the move kind of sliding to his left, hit Fryermuth as he's coming out of his break on this kind of a wheel up the sideline. He caught it as he was on the out and they wheeled up the sideline for a good gain after the catch. Those are consistently, when they do those things in this offense, it almost always creates good things. The reason is the Steelers have great athletes on offense. They have consistently not put them in position to get yards after the catch, which is one of the most frustrating things to watch on tape. That jumps out when you mentioned the the static routes, the comebackers, the curls, all that. They're also so often outside the numbers. And again, mm-hmm. you know, not always pointing to data. I'm not going to every point's not going to be tied to data, but um, throwing over the middle is more efficient in a lot of different ways, especially in today's NFL with so much too high coverage. Throwing over the NFL, higher yards per attempt, you know, a higher success rate, EPA, whatever thing you want to look at. Um, 
and, and but also it's a lot of it because it's yak opportunity. You can get yards after the catch. Yeah, Kenny's touchdown against the Browns. You know, Calvin Austin's a good player in space. Fryermuth can make guys miss or bowl guys over, but they really do not attack the middle of the field at all. So you're also asking a quarterback who look doesn't have the strongest arm in the world. I actually think it looks stronger this year than last year, but he's also throwing so much further because he's throwing, you know, ac- across the field, which adds more distance for the ball to travel, more time for the defenders to crash on the ball carrier, and again, limiting yards after the catch. So there was a little bit more of that, but getting guys on the move and getting them moving over the middle of the football field, got to have more and more of it. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, even if you look at the yak numbers for the Steelers last season, it was probably one of the biggest things that kind of went under the radar. But one of the weakest points in this offense is how rarely it helped the receivers pick up yak. And one of the craziest things was how many tackles they broke regardless of that. Because of the route concepts and the way that they get their playmakers the ball, their numbers are kind of off the charts in this way. Deontay Johnson last year, 2.8 yards after the catch per reception. That was 60th out of the 66 wide receivers with the filter I used for targets. I forget how many targets I filtered it down to, but 66 qualifying receivers in the NFL last year. He was 60th in yards after the catch per reception. Now, some of that's on Johnson. He likes to run backwards once he gets the ball in his hand. That's on him at times. <laughs> but a lot of it is he broke 15 tackles last year on those plays. That was sixth in the NFL amongst receivers out of those same 66. So he's sixth of 66 in broken tackles. And yet he is 60th of 66 in yards after the catch per reception. Why is that? It's the same thing with Pickens. 2.1 yards after the catch per reception. Tied for 66th out of 66. He's dead last out of qualifying receivers. But he broke seven tackles. That was tied for 25th. And remember, Pickens was almost all a go-ball receiver. You're not going to typically break a lot of tackles as a go-ball receiver. And so he wasn't even used in a role that could have. And he still broke seven tackles, which is tied for 25th at his position, even with how little he played and how little his usage was dictated to that. Pat Frymuth is the same story. 4.6 yards after the catch per reception, tied for 16th. That's that's pretty solid. We've seen Pat Fryermuth make some plays after the catch. He broke 11 tackles. That was tied for third amongst all tight ends. So we are talking about guys who can break tackles, make plays in space, make people miss, and yet their yards after catch numbers are consistently in the middle or at the bottom of their position groups because the scheme does not get these guys in place to be able to play to their strengths. That's what's so frustrating is the Steelers have athletes and they call offensive football like they have no athletes on their team. And like they're drawing it up in the sand for a bunch of people in the gym, like or a bunch of people that just put together a turkey bowl game. And they're saying, here's what the routes are going to be because they know that's all they're capable of is turn around, catch the ball, things like that. This offense is capable of more. The skill players are capable of more. Rarely does the offense put the players in position to succeed with the ball in their hands. And you watch a team like Kansas City and you watch a team like Miami and San Francisco. And it is watching a completely different sport, Brad, watching them get the ball to these players on the move. It is funny, too, when you highlight it that way, the perfect way to look at it. And also, like, the marriage between the front office and the coaching, like, they are, they're they're adding yak guys. Like, Calvin Austin at Memphis was just a yak machine. Like, that's all the guy did. Everyone thought he was a pure slot and was going to line up in the backfield a bunch and do different things. I actually like how he's played out wide so far. We can get into that. But, like, you're adding him. Pickens, yeah, he's a jump ball guy for sure. But also, again, we saw against Cleveland, he can turn on the burners and, and make guys miss as well. Like, you're adding players with those skill sets and then not really utilizing it just kind of a, a weird thing to watch through you know a season and a half now it is and that brings us to kind of some of our gripes here is just the amount of staticness in this offense and how easy it is to defend for defenses and people always say they know what the Steelers are going to run I think that's true to a degree I also just think even if you don't know pre-snap it's very easy to defend most of the time 
There was once or twice maybe in the game, the Steelers used like a switch release uh, out of a bunch set. Um, and I was like, oh, but there you go. Like, that's helpful. But again, these are the, the weird things is that they'll do this once or twice a game, but they hardly ever go back to what really works. And so that was frustrating to watch. That continues to be one of the biggest gripes with the offense is how many routes stop and return to the quarterback and how dependent they are on that. I've cut, I might've cut seven plays from this game where I was just like, this is, you cannot win with this. Like you can't win with this route concept. Like there's even a couple of them where it's like, Kenny should throw here. And this pro- might be a completion, a mild completion, a short completion, you know, something like that. But this isn't threatening anyone. This isn't putting any defender in. Co- so there is sometimes both people like who's to blame Kenny or Canada. The answer is definitely both, but it starts with Canada because even if Kenny gets better at running this offense, which like last year he showed flashes of, the lid is still like very like the the ceiling is so low. You know what I mean? Like that's so that's part of the problem is that like even if he technically makes the right decision on a lot of these throws, it's still not doing anything threatening. Like it's immediate tackle after a tackle after the catch. It's still a long down and distance situation. There are way more threatening ways to create explosives to find big plays against these teams, and they're just not consistently able to do it. And so that continues to be one of the frustrating things too is that the, the there are so many issues with Kenny Pickett that we will talk about on this show. But we really like the first thing that comes when you talk about evaluating a team's offense is the design, the structure, the play calling, the play sequencing. Like those, all those things have to matter so much before you even get to the point where you're going to criticize the players. And we'll criticize players. I have tons of notes on players here that didn't play well. And there's things they should have done well in certain plays. And Fryermuth as a blocker is a whole podcast in and of itself. Probably we can discuss the limitations that he's clearly shown. And then also the fact that the role he's asked to play sometimes is completely insane given the fact that he's shown these limitations you know so there's a lot of that too but the fact that the design structure of the offense the play calling and then the play sequencing as well on Sundays is not anywhere close to where it needs to be for an NFL offense makes it hard to start your frustrations with the players as much as Pickett may deserve that at times yeah and I think the the concern for me too like we get into more notes and more thoughts you know kind of tied to prime with a little bit is like, I want more personnel diversity, too, but I have a feeling that when you put a certain personnel package on, it's just going to be a massive tell as to exactly what you're then doing. Um, you know, get getting 12, get Darnell Washington out there and then have him leak up the seam against the cover three defense and attack the weak spots of that. De- like, do different things outside of out of certain personnel packages that kind of bend against the, the general rules and principles of the NFL as all the great teams do on offense these days, you know, your, your Shanahan tree, et cetera. Uh, I just, yeah, as we get into that, I, I have a feeling you, you can't roll out personnel and then do exactly what everyone's expecting, uh, which is probably, you know, would be the case in, in most of the, most of the occasions. Oh yeah. I mean, they, th- they run so heavily out of 12 first. Yeah. It's, it's, ridiculous. It's, it's really crazy. I mean, yeah. How have like Washington comes on the field and is just all, like, oh, well, I guess they're running the football. Like, yep. And he hasn't, I don't think he's, has he been targeted yet in his career? I don't, I don't think so. I don't think he's even been targeted. So, yeah, just crazy. And, and the, the run game, I, I don't, I'm, I, I may need to press pause on myself. Is that before I get to the run game? Let's stick with the fast game for a second because the run game is going to have me, it's going to have me pretty worked up, Brad, when we get to the run game because this thing is the stupidest. This is like the, the mistakes in the passing game were like, this is just bad structure and like, you should be more threatening with your route concepts. Like these technically, these route concepts could work. You could get a quarterback that complete more of these passes. Like I said, Kenny can hit some of these throws, but it's just not very threatening. Once in a while, dial into something, but it's like, doesn't go back to the things that work well enough. Those were kind of all the frustrations of the passing deck. Plenty of things to worry about. The run game is like a whole different, like these are high school level mistakes 
that either the quarterback or the, or the offensive coordinator or their communication is making every single week that you're just like, oh man, like this would not fly. Like, I mean, I've learned coached high school ball. Like this, we would be the first thing we ID on tape, never do. And they do it like five, six times a game. Um, so that's where that, some of that frustration comes in. But let's stick with the pass game for a second. Other thing I noticed is George Pickens is hardly ever when they go bunch receiver and they go to a three receiver side and they do three by ones, he's almost always isolated by himself. And I don't think that that's bad. I want Pickens to have his share of isolation opportunities to the single receiver side. I don't want that to be all that he does though. I want him to be a part of the bunch formations. I want him to be a part of getting those concepts to kind of create that rub at the line of scrimmage and get him the ball on the move. I want George Pickens to have 12 targets a game, to have 15 targets a game if Deontay Johnson's out. I want to get him the ball every way possible. He's already shown he can be better after the catch. He showed it last year with the broken tackles, even though you never put him in position to to break tackles or to, to make plays after the catch. He's shown it this year a little bit, been a very good yak numbers. I know some of that's running in the open field after he catches the football, but he's made people miss. He's done a good job with that kind of stuff. I want to get him the football. Like This is an offense that needs to understand this is who George Pickens can be if we weaponize him. And guess what? If you do it, and he sucks, different story. We can change paths then. But what is your better option right now? Because Allen Robinson is a corpse. And Calvin Austin is good, I think, for what they need him to be. But he he's playing his third, he just played his third NFL game. He's not ready for a major role like that. Twice in this game, they tried to show throw Calvin Austin back shoulder fades. He's like five foot eight. <laughs> like this is, and he did draw a penalty on one and may have gotten penalized on the other, but like this is not something that's gonna consistently work. And so those kind of things get make me laugh sometimes. I'm like, does he know the strengths of his personnel at all? We already know he's a bad play designer. Everybody, and there's nobody at the NFL level that will vouch for Matt Cannon as a play designer, as a play caller, as a play sequencer. Like, I mean, you can literally I've talked to people for years about Matt Canada. I, people will not vouch for him in the NFL level like and those other places. But what also is frustrating to me is the personnel usage and not necessarily knowing how to get his players involved and how to lead on his best players for an offense that's struggling. That is really troubling to me because that shows a stubbornness to do things your way regardless. I'm sure Pickens has let his voice be heard and maybe he hasn't done that the best way. I don't know. But that to me shows like a stubbornness that like could create division amongst their two as players feel like they're not being used to the best of their ability. Yeah, this is probably more anecdotal than something I wrote down, but you mentioned the stacks and the bunches, and I, and I, it is something I noted was, again, it's kind of a tell where if they get into a bunch, they generally then kind of do attack the middle of the field, but you're already in a condensed set. So it's mm-hmm. like, I would love to have George Pickens be the inside guy in a stack and run a wheel or or, or get a free release. Sure. And frankly, when Deontay Johnson's back, I want him to be ISO because he's obviously great off the line of scrimmage. Yeah. Let him create separation by himself have Calvin Austin and his speed outside of George Pickens and let those guys get free releases um, and, and cause problems off the line of scrimmage. Where should Allen um, Robinson be, Brad? Well, let's be nice to our guy, A-Rod. Uh, Bear, <laughs> Bears legend. He, he should be, you know, saving his breath on the sideline and getting ready if someone goes down with an injury. Yeah, like, <laughs> we'll get there. When Deontay Johnson comes yeah. back, Calvin Austin does not need to come off the field. It, it needs to be an 11 personnel, Calvin Austin, Deontay Johnson, and George yeah. Pickens. Yeah, I agree with you. And we'll get to Alan, Alan Robinson's up in a little bit because some of it's some of it's how he's being used also, but then some of it's the fact that I think he's he's done. But um, yeah, I, I it's a great point. I, Deontay Johnson is the guy who creates separation on his own. Let's isolate him. Now there'll be times to isolate Pickens, back shoulder, vertical shots. Absolutely. I, I still want him isolated at times. But guess what? If George Pickens' big issue is how does he create separation? And by the way, I think he's actually gifted enough to create separation just fine. Some of his routes are like, 
I don't care. I run, I run this route because if I get thrown the ball, I'm going to post you up and make the catch anyway. And it got him in trouble the other day. He, he ran one of the laziest routes you'll ever see. And they tried to throw back. He came back to the ball and DB made a play and knocked it out of his hands. And that doesn't happen very often. I understand we're talking about maybe already the best jump ball guy contested catch receiver in the league, but there needs to be a Christmas and alertness to his game. Like he's not, you know, uh, devoid of criticism either in this, like, but the reality is that if Pickens is going to be a guy who isn't going to consistently create his own separation for whatever reason that might be, get him separation with your concepts, get him separation with the release packages that you have and the way you use your receivers and align them with the line of scrimmage. There's none of that. Like that doesn't happen. Pickens has to go get his own on every single catch. Like that's how it works in this offense. And that's just a really tough way to live. Like even if your quarterback was great and all these other things, like it'd be possible. Possible Pickens was like the best receiver in the league, all those kinds of things. He's not that guy yet, like as good as he is. And I do think he's good enough to be a guy that gets 12 to 15 targets a game right now, especially with Johnson out, as I've said. But man, I mean, it's just like they don't, they, he feasts for, he like is off left to fend for himself on almost every single rep. And then there's a decent amount of reps where he, as that backside receiver, is the decoy. Like the concept doesn't start necessarily to his side. And so you are really kind of barely using him in that way. And I don't think that's always bad, but it is bad when you don't have Deontay Johnson in there. It is bad when your other two receivers are a guy who's barely playing. It's playing really his first heavy snaps on offense and a guy who I think looks a little bit washed at this point. And so that's the uh, the lack of understanding for who Pickens is as a player and how to use him, I think, is a big part of the criticism facing this team as well. Um, so those are some of the offensive things. Did you have any other notes on the offense schematically? the passing game that we get into before we talk about the run game. <laughs> I, I think we did a good job there. I think we covered a lot. Okay. We covered a lot of territory. This will be a good transition for us in from the passing game to the run game. They did this. Um, I can't remember what the result of this play was. It was incompletion for sure. Uh, I think it was thrown away. I can't remember. Um, they pulled a guard as a run key on first down on a play action pass from the gun. That tends to work a lot better when you actually pull your cards in the run game ever, like it just was so funny. I'm like, I love the, I love pulling guard play action passes. Like I love it. Those pop passes that Peyton Manning and Tom Moore made famous and have been good for teams over the years. And you know, Brady was so good at those. Like there's so many different applications for those. They've been good. It just, how are you going to actually expect this to work when you never pull a guard in the run game? And so this brings us into the issues with the run game, which are plentiful because I don't know how as an NFL team, you continually go into the box against eight, and nine and guys, eight, eight, nine guys outnumbered in terms of blockers and continue to run the football into that with absolutely zero success. And don't get to the sideline and be like, Hey, you need to check this box count and change this play. Like that's a, if he misses it for one play, but it happens throughout the game in every single quarter. It's like, these are not the numbers you need to be able to run the football in the NFL. Like, I mean, the amount of times Harris got the ball and he's like two guys he has to make miss before he even gets to the line of scrimmage. And it's people like, oh, this offensive line sucks. Okay, we'll get to that. Like, there's some truth there at times with certain players. That's not even the main issue. The main issue is that they have nobody to block these guys. There's nobody in the scheme to account for them. So they're going to be unblocked. And then they go in and they make a play. And it's just the process is so bad. And that even when they got good results, especially when they weren't running from 11, we'll talk about that in a second. Like it was like all, all because the backs made people miss it and, and were able to create something out of nothing. Yeah, it carries over from last year. Uh, the Steelers are bottom five again in yards before contact per rushing attempt. And, and I think the easy thing is to think, oh, the offensive line is bad. 
That's a, it's a scheme stat as much as it is an offensive line stat. I mean, the leaders in that category in the NFL are, again, like your Shanahan's, even this year, it's like Denver, they bring in McGlinchey, mm-hmm. you know, they bring in Ben Powers, who's, I guess, more of a pass protector. But but there, there's an intentionality to when they're getting guys on the move. And for me, it's the same conversation of I. there's a confusing, you know, like you bring in certain players. Look, I'm embarrassed when we mentioned that. James Daniels is not a gap scheme running guard. He get him in the move. He's a good player on the move. Mm-hmm. I know there's a tweet from uh, Brandon Thorne who knows offensive line play as well as anyone who thinks he probably should be a center, which is another mm-hmm. conversation that I actually agree with. But like, he's not a guy that can just win a one on one and just get a push. He's a guy that is very nimble for his size and can move. Mason Cole, not really a great player, but I mean, comes from those schemes as well. And like you said, they're not pulling those guys. And also, he's not playing yet, but. Roderick Jones tape at Georgia is one of the most dancing bear tackles in space that I've ever seen. He's not a very good pass protector. It's probably why he's not playing even Mm -hmm. as bad as Dan Moore is playing right now. But that guy is special out in space as the lead blocker when you get him on the move. And if you're not going to utilize that skill set, like it's just, it's again, it comes back to that for me. There, there are, I think third for us in inside zone runs top of the NFL and just pure gap and power. And like, not saying you shouldn't do that, but like, I think it's why also I call for Jalen Warren so often and it's not really there because yeah, Najee can't really get to the edge. Najee can't run behind a tight end. Again, not entirely his fault, but but Warren can, but it's not really the focal point of their run game, and, and maybe that needs to change. Yeah, that's one of the most interesting things. The Najee and Warren wars, I realized last week, I think, have reached kind of the point where it's like we've lost the plot, which is the plot is not that Najee Harris to me is not a good back. I think he's a good, solid running back. And if you had a great run scheme, and I think if you had guys who were mashing up front and creating openings and you had a scheme that used leverage in their blockings and all of that stuff, like I think if you had all that, like he'd be a thousand yard rusher every year. Like I have no doubt about that. I think he's a good player. And he, he's a guy that can play three downs. Like he's a good player. He's not explosive. He's not fast. And, he, and every movement, like in terms of trying to create in space, takes longer for him than it does for Warren. And because of that, when the margin for error is this small, it looks worse behind this group because he's constantly dealing with issues and he's just not the type of guy to escape like that. Uh, now he's powerful and he's tough to bring down, but typically that process just takes a long time and he looks like he's you know, playing bully ball out there. And Meanwhile, other guys are able to get on the tackle and eventually he gets brought down. So he's hard to br- get on the floor, go on the ground but he's not necessarily an elusive player. And so because of that, I have preferred Warren because the margin for error being so small, Warren being much more explosive. I prefer his skill set in a lot of ways. That doesn't remedy the fact though, that the scheme in terms of what they're asking Najee Harris to do, like he is at his work cut out for him almost every time he gets the ball to create something. And that's really not his game. Like he could do that once he gets to the second level, give him a head of steam, get him a little bit of a runway. There's no runway. There's nothing. When he runs the ball, it is amazing how condensed things are. And we've talked about the box counts and that kind of just goes without saying now at this point, like it's pretty simple. We're not going to belabor the point. Change out of the play or stop bringing people into the box. It's like they're already outnumbered in the box. Oh, let's bring Allen Robinson into the box with a motion and reduce his split down. So now he's a wing. And we brought another defender into the box that we also can't account for. Oh, by the way, Allen Robinson can't block at all. Like he's one of the worst blockers I've ever seen, which I know in his yeah. prime of his career, I don't think he was, but it's over now. Like he, I mean, he, he, he still has not hit anyone from that game on, on Sunday. Like it was so bad. And that was the same way all season. So, okay. So now we're introducing another variable to the, equ- into the equation uh, to account for as a, as a, as a blocker. And 
Um, and and we also are bringing a worse blocker. So we've really put ourselves at a disadvantage. Oh, Pat Frymer's part of this equation. Oh, we've, we're really at a disadvantage now. Oh, Mason Cole's a part of this equation. Okay, now we're, so you basically you're making life harder for all the players who are bad at what you're about to ask them to do. That's bad. That's bad coordinating. It is, it is. And, and obviously he's not a coach, but I, you know, I was encouraged by, look, you bring in Andy Weidel as the new assistant GM, comes from Philadelphia, probably played a part in recruiting Isaac Sumalo, who can do all the things we're talking about, did it in Philly for half a decade. You know, it, uh, Nate Herbig at the backup guard is also a guy who I think belongs more just moving forward in a one-on-one -on -one matchup. But it's just like, yeah, there's just a lot of like oil and water and a lot of what they're trying to accomplish. Um, I think they can find a way through. I think they can get there and they have a plan at least from a, a roster construction standpoint. But like you said, what they're then asking guys to do is not putting them in positions to succeed, Najee included, but also the guys up front. It's going to be interesting to see. I mean, it maybe even doesn't change over Canada. It's going to be interesting to me to see that if this ever changes the approach to the run game, if they get to the point where counter and those the kind of concepts are a bigger part of what they're running, which obviously the great Steeler teams in, in the 2010s were, that that was those were staples with the Castro and Ramon Foster. And, and so if they get back to some of that stuff, the reason I'm so uh, such a big fan of those concepts is because I think they allow they we're talking about ways to create leverage, right? With what you're doing. So I love wham and crunch and um and and counter and some of those kind of staples, wind back, things like that, because you're you're asking defenders to move and then you're leveraging them in space rather than vertically displacing people off the ball. Even if you had a group up front that was like built like that, which the Steelers for sure do not, like Mason Cole's. James Daniels, like these are not, CMO could do anything, I think. He, I don't think he's limited in that way. But they are, you are not talking about guys who are going to like just drive people off the football and maul them in a trench. Like they're working their tails off, but it is not their game. You could see it every time they try to run these vertical blocking concepts, these tight, you know, whether it's inside zone or whether it's, uh, whether it's just a straight one back power, all these kinds of things. It's like, this is not who these players are. And it gets back to my personnel question too, where it's like, I wonder if they're in a different scheme. I don't know if Najee's best fit is, is outside zone scheme or something like that. I don't know if all these guys' best scheme is going to be. I mean, there's other ways to do this than crack toss and sweeps. And you can just be way more expansive. But they basically never run outside the tackles. And that's a big issue here. Because even if Harris isn't the guy to get there, like even if that's not his, his best skill set, you're going to have a better chance of just creating a pathway for him out there. So even if it isn't like, oh, he's going to shine in this type of scheme, I'm willing to concede that. But I still think he's not shining now. Like, so we're talking about like either a negative and a negative at best, or could be more of a positive. And so I think it's something they absolutely need to lean into. Doubt that they do that. Like, typically, a run scheme changing in season, I don't think is very common from the teams that I've studied. But I will be curious to see if this same group of players were in a scheme or get to a scheme like that, if they keep these guys together. I mean, I don't think Mason Cole is going to be a part of this equation for a long time, but if they keep the rest of these guys kind of together for another year or two, Daniels and Siamalu and obviously Broder Jones will be eventually, and we'll see what happens with Chooks. But if that does happen, like, will these guys be better in those that kind of an environment? But you're right on about Broderick Jones. If he becomes a part of this, like not using him as a polar, when he was able to do what he able to do out in space in Georgia, that was like the best thing about his film. He just killed people. By far. I mean, not even close. Yeah, no, I, I think the last piece just on this, too, is like you have an H-back you love to play in Connor Hayward, too. Like you can find mm -hmm. different ways to get Najee or Warren, whoever, like, again, not only them moving at the snap, but other guys moving at the snap, you know, and just creating lanes and doing different things. It's just, it's just, you don't really see it. And like you said, he's probably not the best guy to run off tackle, but it's not like what you're doing now is working either. So right. why not at least try it?
Exactly. And to be honest, like Najee, when he sees space, he, he doesn't have a fast gear really, but like when he sees space, like he will get through it. He just, whenever he doesn't see space right away, it's like he stops his feet and he's like hunting. It's not the most instinctive thing for him, but if you could more clearly define that for him or give him more time to be able to see some things like that. Now I wouldn't even trust Canada to move to an outside zone type of thing. So I'm not talking outside zone to be clear. Like oh, that would be a disaster in my opinion, if they, if they tried to do more of that type of a scheme. Um, but I do think that, yeah, some of these other concepts could be sprinkled in, haven't been, don't know, I expect that to happen, but it's something they really need to look to. I mean, almost every, all of the best run games in the NFL today are almost all not trying to vertically displace people all game yep. long. They're creating advantages with preset with motion. They're creating advantages with um, shifts and things like that. They're creating advantages with concepts like fold blocks and they're, they're letting a defensive tackle up the field. They're hitting him with a tight end. They're running in behind that. They are dictating where players go on defense and then influencing them more in that direction and running in the direction, of the space that they left. It is about scheme and savvy rather than about, we're just going to maul you to death on every single rep. There's reps like that for sure, but the best run games are not built on counting on doing that every single play because it's extremely hard to be able to do that every play to vertically displace the defensive line talent in today's NFL. There are plays where you watch it on the Steelers tape. You're like, these guys did a pretty good job. They moved this guy one yard off the ball. They held their block. He's not like going anywhere, but there's no space. Like everybody's just condensed. Like there's no space, even though they're technically on the block. So the back yeah. just says nowhere to go and runs into the back of everyone. And it's just like, this doesn't happen if you influence the way defenders move and then push them in that direction or guide them in that direction, use more influence blocks and then create space with the concept. But they have no idea. They they say, players, you need to create the space. But that's the opposite of how it should be. It should be concept creates the space, players follow the concept, and then space is created. Yeah, I mean, the average guard weight is probably down 40 pounds from yeah. like 10, 15 years ago. Like, it's not right. how the NFL... And here's an example. And look, I'm not comp I'm not trying to compare to Miami Dolphins. It's a waste of everyone's time. But just as an example, like you look at the Miami Dolphins offensive line, particularly on the left side, Teron Armstead and Isaiah Wynn, who's their left guard right now, are net negatives in the run game, like in a vacuum by themselves. Mm -hmm. They are brought in to be pass protectors. They're both big guys that can't really move in space, especially love Armstead. But the current version of him, you mm -hmm. just hope he you know, keeps to upright and that's all you're asking of him. But they just have so much going on elsewhere that they've been they ran for 500 yards, you know, yeah. against the Broncos. It's not them winning one on ones. They're not being asked to win one on ones. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. They're you, you're exactly right. Like you want the 49ers have literally just plugged in different people on the offensive yes. line. They're like Patriot Williams, like every other spot here. We're just going to let everybody go in free agency. We're just going to plug in. Oh, Colton McKivitz. Yeah. We're still going to run for like 100 yards. Again. You know what I mean? Yep. Like people act like, oh, the Steelers don't have the talent to win on the offensive line. I'm not even saying all these guys are awesome. But like, watch the steel the four hours offensive line for a game. Watch how like how little they have to do compared to what these guys have to do. Like Jake Brendel and Colton McKivitz are starting on that team. Like yeah. if you watch them play football, you're like, these guys aren't starters. No, they are for one of the best run games in the NFL. Like and one of the best yeah. passing attacks too. So there are ways around this. Again, we're talking Shanahan, obviously. Here, so yeah, like, I, know, I, know. <laughs> I understand. <laughs> no one expects that out of Matt Canada. But still, like it just goes to show, like these teams that are—I mean, I watched—I covered the Bucks for the last couple of years, as most people know. And I watched it for years. Like the Bucks, as good as the past concepts were at times, and even when they won the Super Bowl, they didn't have success as a run block, a run blocking unit until they started pulling people and get out of the perimeter. And when they started doing that, almost all the best—if you watch the best plays from the Super Bowl against the Chiefs. 
Packer sweep. That was what got the Leonard Fournette the touchdown. I'm being very anecdotal here. I understand that. I'm drawing from watching every tape of them for the last three years and counting. So I'm not. I'm I'm using anecdotal examples, but I'm using drawing from a large database here, as I say this in my mind, of just like that was when the run game started to evolve. They couldn't run the ball at all like that Super Bowl year early on. Then when they started to get outside the structure a little bit, they were able to run the ball suitably. They still weren't an amazing rushing team. They didn't need to be that season necessarily. And that's the thing. Like You just want to be able to keep your offense on track, right? You just want to don't be in second and eight every single play. Don't be in second and nine or second and 11 or running on second and 10 because you didn't get anything on first down. You're like, we got to establish this thing. Like you don't, if that's going to be the tendency of OCs who don't think, who think very outdatedly, then you have to find a way to be more successful with how you run the football. And so they just haven't found that. Um, some player notes, though, like just like I said, we this can all be overcome, I think, if they were seen better and asked to do things better. Having said that, I don't know that there's really – I've really wondered. I Going into this past offseason, I was very low on Mason Cole, and I said the Steelers need to really look to replace him. And I wasn't sure with the signing of Siamalu, and they had dots in there and Herbig. So it was like, okay, they kind of have a lot of guards. Could James Daniel move to center – and then they get Mason Cole in a backup role, which I think he's suited for. Like he can be a suitable, like just given the state of an offensive line player on the league, Mason Cole's a backup I feel okay about. As a starter, he's really killing this team in the run and pass game. And it's not really a lack of effort or anything. He's trying. He's just small for a center. He's a little bit weaker for a center. Um, he can do good things when he gets to the second level. But in this offensive scheme, you just get there so rarely in space and in the second level that what he's often being asked to do, I mean – John Jenkins is is a solid player, but I don't know that anyone would say like John Jenkins should be ragdolling you on every play against the Raiders. Like that's not a great group of defensive tackles, and he was pretty pitiful. I mean, John Jenkins is probably thirty five years old at this point too. So yeah. you know he he has been a guy with a ridiculously strong anchor for a very long time. But yeah, it's like you know former Bear Ball All Nichols, like fun player, rotational defensive lineman. He was in the backfield a handful of times as well. Uh, these aren't guys you should be losing to as as frequently as they were. Yeah. I mentioned before, I would explore putting Daniels at center and maybe Herbig at right guard. I would at least play around with it, you know, see what it looks like because I, I do think Daniels hasn't been bad. He hasn't been a liability, but. I don't know. I used to I used to think in Chicago, why did they move him outside of center? And mm-hmm. I thought, okay, young quarterback and and a young center, maybe that was part of it. His Iowa tape, I, I thought he belonged, uh, you know, at center, and he might still belong there. Yeah, that's what I evaluated him out originally, and thought he was excellent coming out of college. And uh, was glad to hear you and Brandon say that that was still his best position in the NFL. I hadn't studied his center guard snaps to my memory, at least in the NFL, but. Um, would love to see him back in that capacity, even if it means getting Cole out of there. Um, and yeah, I don't know what her, you know, everything I've time I've seen her, but I know he doesn't play like a ton or anything, but every time I've seen him, he seemed more than capable, especially for the type of scheme. It seems like they're intent on running here. So I would wonder if that would be good or that would be a good process to make that change. The change everybody wants to see is Broderick Jones um, in a left tackle and Dan Moore out. Um, I pretty low on Dan Moore. I've been pretty low on Dan Moore pretty much since he started was put in the starting lineup. Um, I think he gives you just very little margin for error. You have to scheme around him all the time, as they did with Miles Garrett, and just limits your offense, which is already pretty limited. I really have no idea if Broderick Jones is going to be better or not. Uh, watching him in preseason, I was like, yeah, he still has no idea how to pass protect, but he also like somehow wins. Like it's very unconventional, and he's like always in a bad position. And he recovers and. He's kind of an odd player, like a little bit in the way that he plays. It's kind of honestly a little bit similar to Tyler Smith coming out of college. Like he was kind of that way when the Cowboys drafted him was like, 
this doesn't really look right, but he is winning almost all these reps, just like naturally gifted and powerful and athletic and crazy flexibility could contort himself and win in a variety of ways. Offensive line is all about technique though. Like if you don't become better technically, you're going to get killed in the NFL. Like you might survive a player or two off that, but you're not going to make a living off that um, at this level. It's just the players are too good. Um, so I don't know. I don't really, I don't know how I feel about that. Just from our vantage point, I'm not sure that we could say Broderick Jones should be starting over Dan Moore. I was not that high on Broderick Jones coming out of college. So that may influence how I saw things. But I think for me, he was offensive tackle number four or five for me. I had uh, Broderick Jones first. I had um, Darnell Wright second. And I had uh, Paris John, or sorry, I had, yeah, as I say, Paris Johnson first, Darnell Wright second, uh, Dewan Jones third. And then I think I'd brought up Jones or Anton Harrison. I can't remember which one I had. I have to go back and look. But I, so I was a little bit lower on him than most. I was actually lower on the pick. I wanted them to take Christian Gonzalez. We'll talk more about that another time. Uh, but um, so, yeah, so I guess we'll see. But I don't know. I don't feel comfortable. With that. Do you like saying that for sure? And it's it's hard for me. I, I'd like to see it selfishly, but I don't know that it'll be better. No, I agree with you 110%. It's like the number one note I had. I had him, not that my draft rankings compared to John's matter at all. I did it for the first time last year. But um, uh, I I had Paris Johnson first, Darnell Wright second, and then I had Broderick. But the notes literally were, could be a plus run blocker the day he starts playing against power rushers like a Max Crosby, like a Miles Garrett. Guys, they would put him 15 yards into the dirt behind the line of scrimmage. He's just not there yet. He's going to, like you said, his athleticism will probably, if he improves technique, get him there eventually. Right now, he will lose to power on most reps. Yeah. No idea how to use his hands was the biggest thing. He just couldn't yeah. protect his frame yeah. at all. Yeah. So I, I completely agree. I, so I'm a little bit skeptical there. Dan Moore's not good, though, so I don't know that it would yeah. – maybe it doesn't t- you know take away from you that much either. So we'll see. Uh, but uh, ideally, I would love for him to be brought along slowly, Broderick Jones, but that they may not have that luxury if Moore keeps playing like this. The fr- frustrating part with Moore, I think, is just – Jukes takes five plays off every game, but the rest of the plays, he's usually giving you like everything. He actually will try to bury guys. He's the like he was the guy that plays with an edge on this group. I mean, CM Allo does too now, but even last year, like Jukes was the guy that plays with an edge. He'll actually finish here and there. Like he'll stay on his blocks, those kind of things. Dan Moore is like a very technical, like he's a technical player who isn't that very good technically. <laughs> and so, like, and that's all he likes to play. And so he's not really out there mashing people and it doesn't look like at times like he's ready for a rep. Like he will just like, Oh, you can bull rush. That's allowed in this league. Like he looks like that on some reps. I'm like, what do you like? You were totally unprepared for this. He's done it like five times this game. Like, so there's plays like that with him. I think that get frustrating, but I will say, I think CM and Daniels are good enough players to win with. Like they're not perfect players. Uh, They're both, uh, their job is being made harder in the run scheme and in pass protection by the fact that Mason Cole's struggling so much. People don't realize that when they look at, uh, and, and this is some, in some ways goes to PFF grades. And I think one of the reasons why I've always said for years, it is so hard to numerically contextualize offensive line performance. And what PFF, we all do is better probably than, than having nothing. I think in my opinion, to be able to judge that often still off large sample sizes, we can see that. But sometimes when you look at grades and things like that, it's easy to see like, Oh, the, technically the guy that Siamalo was blocking got a sack. Well, there is a cavern next to him that was opened up by a bull rush amazing goal that all of a sudden now he has to defend way more space. And so like it, it, technically like when they see, Oh, sacks allowed or something like that. It's not even so much the grades, I guess like sacks allowed things like that. It's like, Oh yeah. Like th- he's allowed this many sacks. Well, 
until you watch the tape, you don't know why that's happening. And consistently on tape, he's making the job a lot harder for CMO and Daniels because in an offensive line, you want to stay on the same level in pass protection. They are almost never able to do that because Mason Cole's getting walked backward. And that's one of the reasons why I also love play action, by the way, just adding quickly, is that it is slowing down those interior pass rushers from teeing off and the edge rushers from teeing off. All of those play action passes that we described, Kenny Pickett has a nice, comfortable, clean pocket from which to work with. So that's another reason why I really like it is it's actually saving Cole a little bit. Whereas if they continue the straight drop back game, like he's going to keep getting killed, I think. Yeah, I'll just jump in on a quick caveat since this is our first episode. Uh, look, I know when you hear it, some people hear the word PFF, especially in Pittsburgh. Uh, yeah, for some reason, we love to antagonize you. Uh, your brain probably turns off. You don't want to hear any more of it. I'll say this, two things. First, I will get peeks behind the curtain. There are some things I will defend that we do to my last breath. Mm -hmm. There are some things I will gladly admit we know we can get better at, know we can improve upon, and recognize there are deficiencies. Um, so anyway, I'll, I'll mix that in. It's not going to be a PFF podcast, and and you know I, you can trash it all you want. I don't really care. But um, you know I will say one thing: like there are snaps where a guy might be credited with giving up a snap a sack. Excuse me. But still gets graded as a zero because you know maybe we we, we charted to him because like he was the closest guy. But just like you pointed out, we recognize and acknowledge like was it his fault? Probably not. Uh, sure. We just have to put it on someone for some stats. So it's not perfect. It's not clean. Mm -hmm. um, but just that kind of you know kind of hit that that light bulb in my brain. Um, but yeah, you know I, I'm happy to talk about those things. I'm sure yes. we'll get to it here and there throughout the show. Um, <laughs> I know, forgot so. about that. We're we're starting this pod on the on the heels of the T.J. Watt versus Miles Garrett. Uh, Twitter meltdowns. I've I've kind of forgotten yeah. about that yeah. uh, for yeah. a reason. But yeah, no. <laughs> I've always said like PF, not no numerical grade for a system for a player evaluation is ever going to be perfect in a one game sample size. But over the course yep. of a lot of games, they tell us a great story about what a player is typically, especially within the context of the other information, which is the scheme data and who they played with and all that stuff. So again, people who say, well, this one number is gospel. Nobody at PFF saying that. Like that's yep. that's why the beauty of the grades and the evaluation process. And so yeah, I. I more often than not, as somebody who studies tape over the years, I've watched a game and then I've looked at PFF straight. I'm like, yep, those are the best players. These are the worst players. The people in the middle, that's where you're like, I need a bigger game sample size. But like, if you're extreme bad grade, extreme good grade, it's very rare that I'm like, oh, this guy with an extreme bad grade was actually awesome. You know, like it doesn't matter. It it's often. directionally accurate. The, the, the exactly. how specifically accurate, you know, that's up to judgment. I think it's very directionally correct. Mm -hmm. Um, and now I'll just I'll just throw a little shit back out there. Hey, look, I think we were right on Big Ben and Bud Dupree. So yeah. we're not always wrong. Um, but I do That's think true. TJ Watt, I do think TJ Watt is just as good as anybody in the NFL on defense. But you know, sometimes we get some things right. Yeah. <laughs> I was gonna say you guys have always graded TJ Watt very highly, too. Oh, yeah. I got a oh, bunch yeah. of comments from people that are like, You think PFF will finally grade TJ high after this game? I'm like, they have literally always graded him high. I think he's a high, I think he's a higher grade than Miles Garrett, even yeah. right now. It's just that, you know, I yeah. I think pass rush grade is leans Garrett because I mean, I don't know. Go watch the Titans shifting two yeah. tight ends back and forth across the offensive line. Did you see that in, in the game? I saw it. Preposterous. So anyway, again, I mean, TJ's elite, but yeah, anyway. <laughs> I think people outside the league have this idea that Miles Garrett somehow maybe shouldn't be in the conversation for best defensive player in the league. And inside the league, He's on every single person's, but like, no, everybody knows, like, he's that hard to defend, yeah. like, to, to block. It's just, yeah, a, a, nobody goes into a game against the Browns and it's just like, we're going to leave this guy. Like, it just doesn't happen. So, but people who don't watch Dave as much aren't going to necessarily see that as much, which is fine. Um, so the, a couple other things in the run game before we can get to what can change and we'll wrap this up. Um, Pat Fryermuth, a, a mess as a blocker. Uh, just pretty much regardless, like split zone, he's getting killed. Like, I'm like, dude, you should just cut a guy in split zone. Just like get it his way. No, he got killed in split zone like three times in this game. Like, 
put on his back. Like it, one play, he was tackled with the running back on split zone. Now the running back isn't hitting it quickly because he has to stop his feet because the line of scrimmage is also a mess. So there's layers to this, but still just if you're evaluating firing within a vacuum, I don't think you're ever supposed to get like curb stomped when you're going on a split zone block and trying to kick out the edge defender. And he pretty much consistently is even in that capacity, which is usually, like I said, just get in his way and you're good. Um, there's not really a capacity, which he's done. Well, I will say that like, if you're watching the tape and you're seeing things and I don't know how much of this they saw before playing the Raiders, but their Raiders pretty interesting. They're playing Jerry Tillery as a defensive end. And a lot of these early down sets, and you're just like walking into that matchup and it's just killing you. Like that seems silly to me. Like Fryermuth is not until he's like a defensive tackle size defensive end. And he's a great athlete for a size too. And uh shout out Tillery, by the way, I loved him coming out and he was terrible in the chargers, but he seems like he's getting somewhere with the Raiders, which is exciting. Yeah. Um, but Fryermuth, Yeah. I just think asking him to do that is tough. Now the, here's the, one of the most biggest struggles at evaluating run schemes to me, Brad is you need your tight end to be an asset to some degree in the run game in the NFL. Like most teams do, even like the teams that are best at running football, their tight ends are an asset in the run game to some degree. Even if you run out of 11, it would be great if your tight end was an asset in the run game. Like the one tight end you have on the field and when you run out of 11 is an asset in the run game to some degree. You run out of light into light boxes. The the Steelers, one thing that was notable in this game was that when they ran, I don't, you actually may have the numbers at BFF. I didn't chart it exactly, but when they ran out of 11 personnel in this game, I think their three best runs, I would say they're only three good runs in the game. Good is a very ambiguous term. I recognize that, but I didn't chart this. I'm sorry. We're out of 11 personnel, I believe, um, or at least a spread. And then they're negative. All the pretty much their other runs, whenever they tried to run out of 12 and 13, especially 12, it was a complete nightmare. Or sometimes they run out of 11, but they condense the formation. They bring Allen Robinson down as a wing. So they're, they're running out of 11 technically, but it looks like 12 and it's being defended like 12, basically with the personnel that are on the field that are in the box, especially with how much so many safeties defend the run well today in the box. Like So when you look at it that way, it's like, okay, this is technically 11, but you're aligning like it's 12. Only now you probably have a worse blocker now in Robinson and the defense has the same player they'd have in there regardless whether you're running from 12 or not. So, so those kind of concepts, whenever they did that in condensed formation, disaster. Whenever they spread the field or ran out of 11, it seemed like those were when the, some of their best plays happened. And so I just wonder if that doing that may make things a little bit easier for Fryer with the, the play Jalen Warren ripped off 11 or 12 yard gain, six man surface. They have uh, the Steelers that are running out of 11. Uh, receivers are out wide. Fryermuth's in line. Fryermuth was on Tillery. Didn't really block him well. But again, like leverage pre-snap, Tillery's outside. He just has to turn and get in his way. And Warren is quick enough. He gets right through that gap. And Tillery kind of gets a hand on him, maybe with a little more awareness, perhaps. He's like knows that and he's kind of like aware of it enough to like make that tackle. But overall, yeah, I'm like that that is like exactly where you kind of want to be going, I feel like conceptually, um, is moving away from heavy personnel and moving into lighter personnel. Like you said, I think it's both personnel and the condensed splits. I don't have it in front of me, but for sure, anecdotally, they ran better when they were, you know, spread out and spreading the opposing defense out. Like you said, not against eight man box counts. The second point for me is I think because of the George Kittles of the world, we think that a tight end needs to be able to to displace defensive ends in the run game to be a good blocker. There's like five guys in the NFL that can do that. And some of them are just Mercedes Lewis, where it's all they can do. And they're basically like, here, I guess another Bears example, like Cole Komet, who JT O'Sullivan loves to call an eligible tackle. Like, is he a great player? No. Is he George Kittle? No. But what he does, he can at least get in the way of a guy, right? Like, that's what you're saying with Friar Like, when I ask you to move a defensive end two yards off the ball, but 
cause him to, to take enough time to not be able to immediately be, get past you and be able to stay outside of you and force runs back inside and stuff like that. Like, Komet and that next tier, they do just enough to where it gives you a rushing lane or it just it holds up the end enough on, you know, zone read for quarterbacks and stuff like that, which obviously, you know, Pickett's not going to do at Justin Fields level or rate. But but like you just need to be a capable or willing blocker as a tight end in a lot of these offenses. I'm not saying Farmouth is not is not willing, um, but yeah, we're not asking him to be George Kittle. We're literally asking him just to get in the guy's way and buy us a second in, in a play. And I think we did we we need to see more of that. It was not a good game for him in that regard. Yeah, for sure. Uh, it, I, I I kind of am torn on this because I think to me like. I can live with it if your scheme is good and he's a great receiver and he's good after the catch and those kind of things. And I think Frymer is a pretty good receiving tight end. It's it sucks that he's this negative as a blocker. You know, this law far in his career. I'm usually like first couple of years. I don't even expect guys to be able to block. It's just like pointless. Yeah. Uh, like basically nobody does it. It's crazy. Um, and then the ones you do, you're like Njoku, like what? Like <laughs> although I guess he wasn't early, but you're like you didn't block. Like you were this guy in college, and OJ Howard all he did is block, and he can't block at all in the NFL. It's just, you know. Um, so anyway, you can never figure it out, but, um, yeah, so that, that is a negative for this team. They've got to figure out a way around that. I don't have, I mean, the answer ultimately, honestly, would be Washington. You're able to trust them in the past game. Some, and you're able to split their time a little bit more or use Fryermuth more as a wide receiver. If you're going to operate out of 12, use Fryermuth split out, like, and ask right. him to be that kind of a player, like a blocker in space. You more of when you're trying to get out again, if you're trying to get outside the tackles, that makes life a lot easier for tight ends too, in the run game, when you're this interior focused run game. You ask your tight ends to do so much when you're doubling in the inside and you're asking your tight end to base block a defensive end. That is really tough stuff. Like you said, there are hardly any guys who can do that in the NFL as a tight end position. So you're asking a lot of a player. So people watch the tape and say he's a bad blocker and that's not untrue. And he needs to get better at some of the easy stuff, but like asking him to consistently do this really hard stuff is crazy to me. Like that just to me, like, again, we keep going back to it. Personnel. How do you use them? What are their strengths? What are you asking them to do? So it is on the player some, and you'll see me say that over and over again. It is on the player some, and like in Mason Cole's situation, I put it mostly on the player just in general. But like it also is like, okay, this player is struggling because he's continually being asked to do what he's not good at. And maybe he isn't an elite player and he needs to be knocked for that, but he's still a good enough player you can win with Pat Fryermuth. Like as your starting tight end. If you can't win with Pat Fryermuth as your starting tight end, I'm out. Like there's no point in the position because like he's like <laughs> – Exactly like the typical starting tight end who like is actually productive for you. Like he's a clearly above average starting tight end in the NFL in all capacities, except what they're asking him to do as a blocker. And I just feel like we got to find a way around that as a coach. Like you got to be able to tailor yourself to players that are as good as him rather than asking him become the perfect player. That's unrealistic to me when you have a responsibility as a coach to be able to use him in a better capacity. So that's my rant on that. Last thing I have on offense, Allen Robinson. This is a former bear, so I, I want to go easy for you. <laughs> no, I'm it just read, looks no, like no, it's no. over. Read, read your note verbatim. Read what read what you texted me. <laughs> I said Allen R needs to be put out to pasture. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was, I'm not gonna let you get off the hook for that one. I, maybe you didn't want to read that on the airwaves, so I, I won't call you. Out no, again, I, but... that's fine. That's fine. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I mean. It's unfortunate. He was never like a great separator. Again, he was kind of like a good contested catch guy, Um, you know, could make. But yeah, at this point, he really like, like I said, when, when, when Deontay Johnson returns, he should be your wide receiver four, or, or, or you're doing something wrong. For sure. And the fact that Calvin Austin's flashed and maybe the ball skills are never going to be a great thing, but if he can create yeah. splash plays for you and make plays when he gets the ball in space. Like if you get him the ball on the move, 
Like he's another, I got another player that if he were in San Francisco, he, every game he'd be getting two or three touches that mattered. You know what I mean? Like that's just, they know exactly how to use a player like that. Can Canada do that? Cause to me, there's no doubt Calvin Austin can be a player that you can win with. You have to figure out how his best traits are. Don't ask him to do things that he's not. But if you can do that, he's a player you can win with. That hasn't happened yet. I think with him that much. I mean, the vertical stuff is encouraging. Obviously the big play was encouraging, but it's one play. And I think that it's kind of obvious he's fast. And so like, can you get find other ways to get him the football um, so that he can be an asset to your offense other than ask him to, you know, back shoulder fades against guys that are bigger than him. Um, Allen Robinson, on the other hand, when I see a move, I just think this isn't an NFL player. Like the way he moves isn't NFL level anymore. Like, and even his play in the box, like, honestly, one of the funniest things is it's pretty clear watching him. He doesn't know who to block, which I don't know. I didn't really study like his stuff before this. Like it's been years since I've like studied Allen Robinson on like rundowns, like, and stuff like that. So I don't know if this was consistently a problem with him. I think people like him as a blocker, but when they said that, they were like, if you throw a screen out there, he'll stock block somebody. But you're not going to yep. root out a linebacker. <laughs> you know what I mean? No. Big, yeah. Big difference. And just in general, Brad, I don't really think there is such a good thing, such a thing as a good blocking wide receiver. Like, I know that it's a thing we throw around, but to what level? Like, out on the perimeter? Sure, sure, sure. That's a thing. On the move, things like that? Absolutely, yeah. But we're talking about, like, condensed, close to the line of scrimmage. I don't know. Like, people said it for years. Chris Godwin's a great blocking wide receiver. I watch him when they condense the formation and ask him to root out a linebacker. And I'm like, I don't get it. Like he gets in the way sometimes and other times he just doesn't do anything. Like it's just like, he's a wide receiver. That's a linebacker. Like it's just rarely going to be the case. that that's actually you know, Larry Fitzgerald. Maybe it just, it's so rare. So anyway, if you're asking a wide receiver to be this, we'll keep going back to the same concept. Again, Allen Robinson can't block. He's a bad blocker. Didn't even look like he knew who to block uh, in this past game. To be honest, there were several plays where he gets through and he stops and he's like, looking around like which which one of these guys like um a couple times he just yeah totally whiffed like it, i didn't see a good block on the whole tape uh and i think the grade reflects that too but um i would say that that once you see that on tape once you or you probably should have seen that going into the year honestly he's got a lot of sample size on tape on there you should know okay we're, we're gonna change our approach so the fact that they keep bringing him into the formation come be a part of the solution for us well that doesn't make any sense like he he can't be a part of the solution for you like he's shown it to you over and over and over again and you're still asking him to be that way as a player like so in some ways yeah i think Allen robinson like just doesn't have much to offer anymore as an nfl player but in other ways it's like they're relying on him to be a staple of what they're trying to do and that is just insanity because he has just consistently shown that's not who he is it's tough too because he has to be like i like the idea of making him the big slot i think it's the correct thing to do with the the speed athlete he is right now but that is of course then going to ask of you to do more in blocking and it yeah not a strong suit so yeah, yeah. just tough it was it was a great bear uh his last year yeah. in chicago he, he kind of just stopped even trying to block which i don't know he's on a franchise tag probably just trying to stay healthy for the for the market but but right. anyway uh yeah no he, he, it's not a do a whole lot right now yeah. Oh, he's an awesome, awesome player in his prime. Oh, yeah. You know, and ultimately, like, yeah, maybe he just isn't very, even very good as a slot. Maybe a better scheme would help him more. Maybe you want to be able to throw him a back shoulder fade on the outside a little bit more. And maybe you get Pickens and Johnson in the slot or use more of those reduced split, you know, trips, bunch sets. And there still could be ways where he could be a possession guy for you. Um, but he should be the fourth receiver on this team in terms of snap. He should still get snaps, I think. I, I, I just relying on him to be a guy for you. Uh, is a problem. So that brings us to what can change here as we wrap up this pod, because I know we got to get out of here in the next couple of minutes. What can change moving forward for this team? We talked about more play action. Um, 
the, that's going to be even interesting because the concepts have to change the route concepts because you don't want to be running play action with a ton of static concepts like the Steelers like to run because then it allows defenders just to go back and find the guy once they're retreating back in coverage. You want moving pieces behind the defense so that their landmarks are off when you throw the football. So that's interesting because they actually did. Well, all he was talking about this in our pod uh, on Audible's analytics last week is that he doesn't know about the Steelers running more play action because the concepts are are not good married with play action. So I would, I said, and my response was you got to change the concepts, like, cause you need play action. And, and he was like, yeah, we'll see if they can do that. They actually did that in the next game. So that was kind of interesting. They, the concepts were actually that they threw to were actually good off play action. Um, so again, we're talking about a very small sample size. So I have no idea if that can continue or if they can continue to build on that. But that I think is a really important thing. We talked about the run game probably enough. I don't know. We'll talk about jet motion another time, probably. Using motion with a Yeah, go I was going to say we should tell. We talk about motion. Does Matt Canada know there are other motion types besides jet motion? Like you can run orbit motion. You can run like there are different things you can return do. Return motion. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think return would be great with with an athlete like Calvin Austin. I think he would have Heck so yeah. much room to operate if he did a return or orbit or, or something like that. But yeah, they just do jet. It's it's always jet. If he does, rarely yeah. you know use pre snap motion. <laughs> It's like we've seen Jet for forever, dude. Like every team knows yeah, Claypool and yeah, it's unbelievable. <laughs> it's so funny. I can't believe that he's still like this. This does it. This is a this is clearly making it work for us. It's just hilarious. Watching them try to run to a nine-man box and then use a jet and be like, this'll save us for the fact that we're outgapped by two defenders. I'm just like, how can how can this be your process? Um, so yeah, use the motion for the purpose, I think is good. We'll get into that more in other other albums, uh, we, or other uh, episodes. We talked about uh, the offensive line potential changes. Uh, playing Austin more when Deontay Johnson's back, spreading the field more, more bunch sets, I think still creating those switch releases. So that's good. The other thing I think is I just say like, there's reason for optimism and hope for the Steelers and that the players can get better. I think Um, not all of them maybe, but like we could see more Calvin Austin, Deontay Johnson could come back. Those are all Broderick Jones could be good eventually. Like, I don't know if it's going to be this year. Um, You could see a move at center. Like there's actually like, other options here for this team like there's other ways they can go defensively when cam hayward's back that could be like a a boost for the team if joey porter jr continues to get better places i don't i I, even at linebacker i think they're kind of like figuring it out like cole holcomb's they don't have a perfect solution there and they ask their linebackers to do a lot so it's kind of weird but i still think there's better players there than there were in the past you've got to find you know they've figured out some things in the run game defensively i felt like this week but they'll also face more yeah, they, the 49ers are tough. Like people are like, oh, yeah. those defensive lines get killed. Not always. Like it's it's more mental than it is physical. Like with those guys, like you know, you have Buffalo to figure out how to beat well. the concepts. Yeah. Yeah, you know, like Cole Holcomb, I think is a good coverage backer. I think he's looked good the last two weeks. I mean, you could have, you know, Roquan Smith and whoever, and Fred Warner and Kyle Shanahan's offense could probably put those guys in conflict yeah. uh, on pretty much every snap and kind of pick on them. I I thought Holcomb compared to week one to now has maybe shown the most growth of like any guy on the defensive side. Yeah. Um, it was tough week one, and I think he's settling in and feels a little more confident and comfortable uh, the last two weeks. Yeah, I do too, and they seem like they're ready to lean on him. Quan played more this game. Landon Roberts played less. I like Landon Roberts. It's just hard because the role has to be so siloed for him in today's NFL. He's just so good at what he does, but like, yeah, um, it is difficult for him. Uh, yeah, I think they've Benton can get better. Joey Porter Jr. can get better. We kind of lost it in the sauce of this team preseason performance where it was like this team could be like could win the division. And, you know, I'll admit I actually got a little bit higher on them than I probably should have been, although I didn't think they were going to win the division. Um, but, I, you know, I, I looking at it now, I'm like trying to remind myself like this is still a very young team that like 
if they don't win a lot of football games this year, that's not necessarily a disaster. They obviously have to make the right move of quarterback and offensive coordinator after the season. So those positions need to be under heavy scrutiny, I think. But like there is a lot of capacity still for what the product on the field that you see now to improve. You know, people ask me all the what can the Bucs do? What can they do? Like nothing. They have no depth. Like the Bucs can't do anything. Like they have no depth. And right. this is the transition. This is the start of kind of where the Steelers were a couple of years ago. And like that's what's gonna happen. Like they're just they're gonna lose this season. Like they're probably gonna lose, they're two and one now, but they're probably gonna lose more games uh as they go on, and they're probably gonna finish with a high pick. And that's what happens. Like that's the cycle of life in the NFL when you spend to win a Super Bowl and they gave themselves a shot at a couple of them there and won one. And that's what you do. And the Steelers are kind of in this, okay, we need to be evaluating this team for sure. Some of these guys have been here a while, but they're also in like a, this should be steps forward year offensively. And that's where you get into the frustration with Canada and Pickett, I think, is that like everything else seems like it's ready to move forward to some degree, at least, even if it is an elite level, to be like a wild card fringe playoff type of team. And the rest of it, 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 because of Pickett and 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 uh, Canada, I think seems to be kind of stuck in place. And and we did get into some things with Kenny. We'll get into more with him later. But we really want to start this podcast. I think talking about conceptually where are we at with the offense and evaluating what went wrong, what was better in this game, what are big issues in the Steelers' offense that you're not going to hear talked about on TV and in the radio and things like that that are actually holding them back. You know, it isn't just necessarily like a certain play call that's stupid in a certain situation or things like that. We didn't even talk about play sequencing today and how that's been painful at times in that Canada. But um, we're talking about some of the things conceptually that can be better with the offense schematically, I think, moving forward. So it was a good place to start, but there's other things to build to. But I will say encouragement to people like I do think there's op- opportunities here for young guys to play and and show something. I don't think Joey Porter Jr. has seen his snaps increase the last three weeks. And I know you watch some of them in this game. I don't think he's not playing because he can't play. I think that's just how the Steelers would like to treat rookies if they have the luxury of doing that. Yeah, and like Levi Wallace has been okay, and like Patrick Peterson, like he's maybe not Allen Robinson level, but I think he's trending in that direction. Yeah. Uh, so how are Patrick Peterson's mistakes this season mental though? That's what I want to know. That's fair. I don't understand that's, that. Like that's fair. You like that's, you, you'd hope you right. No, that's fair. Weird. You, you bring him in and say he'll he'll always be in the right spot. He just yeah. might not be. Yeah. And yeah. I mean the the touchdown Ayuk. He's got in like there's the safety inside. He knows that he's got to play the outside. He's leveraged to the outside and he's biting on an inside fake. And he, I'm like, dude, you got to know this. Like the touchdown the other day. Like yeah, everybody's gonna put on walls. Yeah. And, like I'm like, no. When they run that coverage, Mink is cutting the crosser. Yep, and the yep. corner is replacing in the middle of the field, and he is way late to recognize it, and he's way out of position as a result. It's like not an athleticism or age thing. Like I'm sure if he was still running four threes, he would have gotten back there and maybe knocked the ball down. Maybe he wouldn't have pushed the jump button a second late. But <laughs> I, I'm just saying, like to be out of position like that, that was just real. Like that, those are the kind of things. He's not, and he's not been bad on every rep. He still made some good plays here and there. But like, yeah, that's the kind of stuff I'm like, why is he making mental mistakes? Like, that is so weird. Maybe that does tie back to our Joey Porter Jr. conversation where like that, maybe that's probably more of it than like you said, his ability Um, when they did play him just real quick. I know we've been going on for a while and I do Mm -hmm. think we're going to be more about like foundational things as opposed to like talking about specific plays. But I do think also a cool thing we can do is like, look, there are three or four plays in a game that can kind of dictate an entire NFL outcome as people know. So, but anyway, when they did play him, he was up in press bumping Devontae Adams off his route at the line, and it actually worked a couple times. I mean, Devontae Adams had 20 targets and 13 catches in this game. Um, Right away in the first quarter, late in the first quarter, there were like three straight reps of the two against each other. One, he just totally knocked Devontae off his route, and I Mm -hmm. think Garoppolo kind of just looked a different direction. Another one, Adams kind of got him to bite on an inside move, went back outside, but he recovered very, very well. There was a throw there, and it was like basically just out of bounds. It was not targetable, so... 
they trust him to you know play with the big boys and, and use his physicality and his size against a guy like a Devontae Adams, who, if you give a free release, is gonna get the football. Um, I was encouraged by his tape. And then last thing we touched on Keanu Benton. I think the number one thing I noticed when you look at interior defensive line prospects, and there have been a whole lot of very good ones the last couple of years, a lot of them either have a great first step or heavy hands, and they need to figure out the other piece of it. I won't I won't mention the Bears every single podcast, but for example, Gravon Dexter, who was taken four picks later in this draft, has the slowest get-off, I think, in the history of the NFL, but is the heaviest-handed dude I've seen yeah. play as a rookie in my life. Keanu has both. Like, go watch this tape against the Raiders. His get-off is really encouraging against the run and pass, but also, I mean, the swim move on Andre James for the sack, he just tossed him aside, and there are a couple other reps where maybe he doesn't get off the best, but he's able to regather himself, get into an offensive lineman's chest. Uh, I think Benton's going to be a really good player. Yeah, I'm excited. I'm, I got to get into the defensive tape still, although I saw him live, obviously. I, mean, I watched preseason, I watched the last couple weeks. Like he, he, I'm excited, too. I, I might be wrong about that one. I, I loved him with the Senior Bowl, and then I watched his Wisconsin tape, and I let it influence me when I should have just recognized his role you know, it wasn't to be that type of player as much as he would be in the NFL. He plays so high. Like, I hate when defensive yeah. tackles play high because I'm like, you're all going to get washed out. But then you see Chris Jones and DeForest Buckner, and you're like, these guys play high every snap. And they win. Like, you know, they stand straight up and win. You know, but again, the path is rare. Like, you have Jerry Tillery getting washed. You have Draymond Jones getting washed, you know, to, you know, guys who play high. So anyway, I always get hung up on that. And I should have just been like, he hasn't even been a big issue in the NFL. Like, I, yeah, he's going to be good, I think. Um, and so, yeah, so little things to look forward to for sure. Speaking of things to look forward to, this podcast, ladies and gentlemen. And you want to tell me, I, I want to tell you how you can help us with this podcast. A, you could spread the word. Right now, if you're listening to this podcast and you're like, wow, this was awesome. I didn't get information like this from any other podcasts I've ever listened to about my favorite team. Awesome. Thank you, first of all. Second of all, text the link. Text the pod. Send it to a friend, a family member. Share it on social media something like that. That helps this pod grow. That helps us be able to bring in more guests, get better equipment, feed our family. <laughs> okay, I'm kidding about the last part. Um, somewhat, somewhat, somewhat. Maybe take a vacation here and there. We'll see. Um, but yeah, so it helps with all those things. So spread the word is the best thing you can possibly do for us. And the other thing you can do for us is leave a rating or a review. You can do that on a number of different places, whether you listen on Spotify, you can do it on Apple Podcasts. This is on Google Podcasts as well. If you're listening on one of the other platforms and you wonder if it's on, it's on pretty much everywhere you want to listen to. So uh, check it out on those places as well. Subscribe to the podcast, leave a rating or review for the podcast. So the three things you can do to help share the podcast, friends, family, social media, subscribe to the podcast, uh, and then leave a rating or review. Maybe you want to wait till we get a couple shows in. That's fine. But if you do those things, it boosts us up. Other people know we're watching. We start to appear on rankings, things like that. More people get tuned in. We can keep growing the show. We can offer more shows a week. We do all kinds of stuff as we get going here. Um, but that's the best way you can help us. So we love you all. We appreciate you all. Thanks so much for listening to the first ever episode of Yin's No Ball. Peace. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring this podcast. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System, you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. At hundreds of locations across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE system technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. 
That's unifydhealing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system.